Let's open up to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to continue our sermon series on Galatians. Last week we did verses 1 through 9. This week we're going to do uh, verses 10 and then on into chapter 2 through 16. I'm reading out of the translation called the Passion Translation. And uh, this is what it looks like. This is just the letters from Paul. It's a great translation. It's a newer translation, and it combines a lot of the Aramaic and the Greek together. So it sounds a little different, um, but that's why. Are you all ready? Okay. Father, I'm asking that you would come this morning and just open our minds. We want a fresh revelation. We want the veil taken off this morning. We want to see the things that have been hidden. Would you come and reveal it to us? Come and touch our hearts. Come and speak to us. Come and move us, God, to come in line with you so that all of our lives act in a consistent manner with the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's jump right into it. Um, Chapter 1, verse 10. I'm obviously not trying to flatter you or water down my message to be popular with men. But my supreme passion is to please God. For if all I attempt to do is please people, I would not be the true servant of the Messiah. Okay? The ESV says, for I am now seeking, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay? Um, This word in the Strong's definition, the word for um, pleasing man it means to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. Okay? To accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. It's where you change a piece of yourself to please somebody else. All right? It's called man-pleasing. Everybody say man-pleasing. Jesus told us you can't serve God and mammon. Y'all remember that? Okay? You can't serve God and mammon. Same goes with you can't serve God and man-pleasing. You can't please God and man at the same time they don't go together, okay? So that's what Paul is saying here. He says you can't do that. It does not work. If you're going to be a true servant of Jesus Christ, you have to be ready, willing, and able at the drop of a hat to jump on board with what God is saying to you and to say yes and to go obey him, okay? Say ready, willing, able to serve him whenever he calls, okay? So a great uh, example of this is Mr. Greg Weigel. Hi, everybody say hi. So Greg is, um, he's in the Air Force, and he is a true servant of the King of Kings. He's also a true servant of our nation, okay? So what does that mean for him? He's up on the uh, AWACS, keeping an eye on everything going on, and he's training guys how to do it, everything. In general, he knows what tomorrow will bring, okay? In general, he knows what time he'll go to work and what time he'll get to come home. In general, he knows what next week will look like. In general, he knows what the next month is going to look like. But he is a true servant of the nation. And so what does that mean? He is ready, willing, and able at the drop of a hat to serve his country. So if something happens today, he could be overseas tomorrow because he's ready, willing, and able. He's a true servant, okay? And so when you're pleasing God, it's a little bit like that. If you're pleasing man and you're trying to think of, I want to make sure that they like me, that they feel good about me or whatever, 
You can't do that and please God at the same time. If you're going to be a true servant of God, you have to be ready, willing, and able at a moment's notice whenever the Lord calls you to do something. And whether it's going to make people happy or not, you say, yes, sir, I'm on my way. I'm going right now because you have a purpose and a mission for me, and I'm going to say yes and amen to it. That is a true servant of the king. Amen? Uh, Matthew 25, 23. Jesus is telling this parable and he leaves something in charge with these guys and when he comes back he tells them well done good and faithful servant so he comes back and he sees that they've served him well and the master's reply is well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things and I will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness if you serve God well and not man well if you serve God well when you get to heaven you are going to be greeted by God with a well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in my happiness. Amen. So when you wrestle with man pleasing or man's opinions over serving God, let that be a motivating factor. God is up there waiting to greet you with a well done if you serve him, if you're a true servant of him. Let's move on to verse 11 in chapter 1 of Galatians. This is 11 and 12. It says, Beloved ones, let me say emphatically that the gospel entrusted to me was not given to me by any man. No one taught me this revelation, for it was given to me directly by the unveiling of Jesus, the anointed one, before my eyes. Okay? The word revelation, it means to lay bare, to make naked, to disclose the truth, instruct concerning things previously unknown, to manifest manifestation or appearance. It means to remove the veil from something. All right? So go like this. Remove the veil. Okay? Revelation. You remove the veil. If uh, Elon Musk just debuted the Tesla Model 3, right? Put a big old blanket on it. Unveil the Model 3. Okay? So that's Revelation. And Paul says that he didn't learn the gospel from anybody, but he had it unveiled to him by Jesus himself. Who wants to be taught directly by Jesus himself? Amen. Whoa. Nobody taught him. Jesus taught him directly. Some people think that this happened when he was on his way to Damascus, and he had his, his conversion. The bright light happened. Jesus is standing there, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Some people think this is the moment when Paul was downloaded, taught by Jesus, the revelation of the gospel of grace. Some people think that it happened not at that point because the only things written about that time is Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting and oppressing me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he answered, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him, terrified, they stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Okay. How cool is that, by the way? Um, Paul's walking. He's going to murder people. He's going to arrest people and throw them in jail. He's on a five-day journey to get to Damascus. He's walking, walking, walking. Bam! Jesus himself shows up. And the people with him, who are his entourage, cheering him on, they hear the audible voice in their ears of Jesus saying, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul is seeing Jesus, and he's gone blind. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so Paul says, I didn't learn it from man. I learned it from Jesus. I don't necessarily think this is the moment when he learned the gospel of grace. I think this is the moment when Jesus slapped him in the face. And then he was like in trouble for a few days trying to figure out what just happened. But after his salvation, he goes into the desert for a period of time, three years. He goes in the desert and around Damascus, and he's just 
kind of in isolation. He's with God. And I believe it's during this time, during these early formative years, where Paul meets again with Jesus, and Jesus directly teaches him the gospel of grace. He had the the veil removed from his eyes to fully understand who Jesus was and what the gospel of grace was. Okay? So here's what we can take from that. Every time you read a testimony in the scriptures... You need to be saying, wow, that's amazing. Second thing you need to say is, holy smokes, if it happened for them, surely it can happen for me too, right? So here we have Paul telling you that he went off and he spent time with Jesus and Jesus showed up and Jesus taught him what the gospels mean. He taught him the grace gospel, which means that when you spend time with Jesus, you should expect that Jesus can show up in your time with him like he did with Paul, and that Jesus himself can come and remove the veil from your eyes so that you can understand what the gospel of grace is truly all about. Amen? So practically, how do you do that? How do you, how do you go in and spend time with Jesus and ask him to reveal himself to you, to remove the veil? When you sit down to be with him, I always, I'll sit down, and if I remember, I'll say, Jesus, please help me. <laughs> I want to see you. I want to understand something about you in this next period of time that I do not already know. Would you, as I read through this scripture, would you please come and take the veil off of my eyes and let me understand what the truth is, what the eternal truth is about this scripture. And I'll sit and ask him sincerely to come and remove the veil. This can happen as you sit in journal. It can happen as you read the word. It can happen as you're driving down the road. It can happen in your prayer closet. It can happen through dreams at night. It can happen with visions. It can happen day or night. It doesn't matter. But if you believe that Jesus wants to come and meet with you and remove the veil from your eyes, he will come. Amen? So for me, a lot of times it will come through analogies. I'll sit and I'll think about a scripture and I'll be asking the Lord, show me. And a thought will pop in my head of something that I understand in the natural realm, right? And then the Lord will explain it to me. It's like this. When this happens and then this happens, this happens. And in the same way, in the heavenlies, this happens, this happens, this happens. It's because everything in our natural world is in a sense it's a copy of something in the spiritual realm. There's always direct correlations and parallels from the spiritual world that we don't understand to the natural world that we do understand. And so very often for me, Jesus will reveal himself through practical things that I understand. He'll dumb it down and he'll say, it's like this. When you turn on the microwave, this happens. When you ask me for this, this happens, right? Okay? All right. So when you spend time with Jesus... Ask him to come and take the veil off. I journal with Jesus a lot. I'm going to show you this. I've shown you this before. I'll show you again. Can you see this? This is my conversation journal. I have black ink. I have purple ink. I have my dates. And as you go on down, you'll find blue ink and red ink. And I sit and I type out my thoughts. I used to write everything down. But for me personally, when I journal with the Lord, it like turns off a section of my brain somehow. Like when you pray, does anybody ever get distracted when you pray? Yeah? Okay, I'm not the only one. All right, good. 
So when I pray, I go into my prayer closet, God, I want this. Oh, I'm hungry. Man, that sounds good. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm... God, I don't want to pray for this. Oh, man. <laughs> Video games, right? Whatever it is. It's how we are. It's natural. But I found that if I would journal out my prayers, it's some, it's some weird thing. It, like, shuts down that wandering part of my brain. And I would write it out because it takes so much longer to write it out, right? And I would ask a question that I did not know the answer to, and I would write the question down on paper. And then, as soon as I finished the question mark, a thought would pop in my head, and I would just immediately begin to write what that thought was. So, why do you do this? Because, and I just immediately keep writing, because. And then by the time I finish writing, because, another word is there, and another word, and before I know it, there's a paragraph written of the things that the Lord has said that answers my question that I did not know before. And then if I go look it up in scriptures, it's 100% biblical. Not, not always. I have been known to make up things that I feel like God is saying. Okay? So always test it with scriptures. But in general, this is a powerful way for me to connect with God, which is to journal. And I switch from handwriting to uh, computer because it's a lot faster. I can cover a lot more ground with the Lord. Okay? So a lot of times that'll happen with me when I'm journaling. He'll reveal himself. Here's why. Proverbs 25.2. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Okay? Proverbs 25.2. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. But to search out a matter is the glory of kings. In God's eyes, you are a king. In God's eyes, you are a son of the Most High. Okay? That's how he views you. And that's how he expects you to act, to be like a king and to go search out matters that he has hidden on purpose so that you can have this beautiful walk in relationship with him. It happens as he unveils himself to you. Amen? Okay, let's go on to verse 13. 13 and 14. Paul says, by now you've heard stories of how severely I harassed and persecuted Christians. And I did my best to systematically destroy God's church. All because of my radical devotion to preserve the traditions of the Jewish religion. My zeal and passion for the doctrines of Judaism distinguished me among my people. For I was far more advanced in my religious instruction than others my age. So, in Acts chapter 22, we learn that Paul was a student of Gamaliel. I can't even say it. Okay? Gamaliel, he was uh, considered to be one of the very top Pharisees of his day. I'm going to read a little bit about him. And Jewish tradition, this is from Wikipedia, the most trusted source on Gamaliel. <laughs> Jewish tradition in the Talmud Gamaliel is described as bearing the titles Nasi and Rabban, which means our master. So they considered Gamaliel the master, which some people say would be the president of the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And although some dispute it, it's not doubted that he held a senior position in the highest court in Jerusalem. Gamaliel holds a reputation in the Mishnah, which is the written oral tradition of the Jews, for being one of the greatest teachers in all the annals of Judaism. Since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, this is a quote from somebody talking about him, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and piety died out at the same time. Gamaliel's authority on questions of religious law is suggested by two Mishnaic anecdotes 
in which the king and queen ask for his advice about rituals. The identity, the identity of the king and queen in question isn't given, but it's generally thought to either be King Herod Agrippa I and his wife, or King Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. Okay? So this is a Jewish man, potentially the president of the synagogue, of, of the temple in Jerusalem, and he's so well respected that there's stories are they true or not? I don't know. But there's stories of the king himself coming to Gamaliel to learn about rituals. The Mishnah mentions Gamaliel's authorship of a few legal ordinances on the subject of community welfare. And he argued that the law should protect women during divorce and that for the purpose of remarriage, a single witness was sufficient evidence for the death of a husband. In Christian tradition, the Acts of the Apostles introduced Gamaliel as a Pharisee in a celebrated doctrine of the Mosaic Law in Acts chapter 5. In the larger context, Peter and the other apostles are described as being prosecuted before the Sanhedrin for continuing to preach the gospel despite the Jewish authorities having previously prohibited it. This passage describes Gamaliel as presenting an argument against killing the apostles, reminding them about their previous revolts with Thaddeus and Judas of Galilee, which had collapsed quickly after the deaths of those individuals. Gamaliel's advice was accepted after his concluding argument. He said, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Okay? So that's Gamaliel. That was Paul's teacher. It's later said by Phocius, who might not be a real person, but it was said about him, that Gamaliel was baptized later in his life by Peter and St. John. And that he later came to Christ. But he kept it a secret so that he could continue as a leading member of the Sanhedrin for the purpose of covertly assisting his fellow believers. Wow. How about that? I don't know if it's true, but you can find out when you get to heaven. So um, that was Paul's teacher. The top dog. Paul sat at his feet and learned the law. And to be in that sphere, you had to be extremely brilliant. You had to memorize giant chunks of scripture just to be able to be at the table. And Paul was one of the very, very, very top under the top guy. Okay? So Paul was serious. Paul devoted his life to these things. It's said in Acts chapter 5 that Paul was present. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. Whenever Stephen was martyred and he looks up to heaven, he sees Jesus, and he asks for forgiveness for the people killing him in that moment. Paul is sitting there holding their coats. Come on, guys, go get them, go get them. And it says that Paul was wholeheartedly approving of what was happening at Stephen's murder. Okay? And when I hear wholeheartedly approving, here's what comes to mind. I think of people being at an MMA fight, okay? Have you ever seen one on TV or maybe been, anybody been there in person? Has anybody ever been to a hockey game when there's a fight? Okay, okay, only happened one time. And if you love that, don't be offended. I've only been in a hockey game one time when the fight broke out and it was like creepy to me. Because something changed over the whole audience of 10,000 people. And the mindsets looking for blood of this one guy to destroy this other guy. It was like psycho. It was like maybe what it would have been like a little tiny bit like in the Roman days with gladiators. It was weird. So I never, I don't watch hockey anymore. I don't go to hockey games because of the feeling that was happening in my spirit when it happened. But 
MMA fight. You're watching your guy beat the junk out of this other guy. You are wholeheartedly approving about what's happening here, okay? And that's kind of how I view Paul in that moment with Stephen. He was wholeheartedly approving and championing his guys, destroying the life, taking the life out of this other person simply because he was preaching the gospel, the Jewish gospel, showing who Jesus was in relation to the prophets, okay? So Paul was fierce. He was a fierce persecutor of the church. On that very day when Stephen dies and Paul wholeheartedly agrees, all of a sudden, riots break out in a sense. And there's this huge persecution that comes on every believer. And I think Paul's at the forefront. Let's get up. Come on, guys. Enough's enough. We're going to take this out. And he rallies the troops, and the believers scatter throughout the whole region at that point. Shortly after that, Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul was still breathing murderous threats. It's like from his every fiber, every moment of his being, he is breathing death for believers. And so he goes to the high priest, and he asks for letters from the high priest to give him authority to go a five-day walk to Damascus, to go to the synagogue in Damascus and find anybody who follows the way and to chain them up and drag them back to Jerusalem so we can put them into justice. Okay? So Paul's on his way to Damascus, breathing murderous threats with the full authority of the nation behind him. In verse 15 of Galatians 1, but then something happened, Paul says. Acts 9, verse 3 through 22, tells the story of his conversion. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man and the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And now he's come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to to the people of Israel. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me here so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And that's so good. So verse 15 in chapter 1 of Galatians. Paul has just said, but something happened. That's what happened. And now Paul says, God called me by his grace, and in love he chose me from my birth to be his. 
God's grace unveiled his son in me so that I would proclaim the message of sonship to the non-Jewish people. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9, 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished, and they asked, Isn't that the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I love it. He grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus, by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You know, Paul was able to baffle the believers, or the non-believers, because he understood the scriptures. He devoted his whole life to knowing the scriptures. He'd given everything to knowing the scriptures under Gamaliel. He understood them in and out, so he thought. But, you know, he wasn't able to baffle anybody until he had the veil removed by Jesus. The same scriptures. So Paul comes to Jesus. He realizes, and then he goes back to the same scriptures, and he digs in, and he presses in, and he starts spending more and more and more time in the scriptures. And the more time he spends in the scriptures, the more the veil is removed and the more he sees, oh my goodness, Jesus is in all of this. Jesus was here from the very beginning. And all of a sudden, Paul begins to preach the exact same scriptures that they've grown up on every single week, but with Jesus in the middle of it. And he, he's proving them wrong and he's proving Jesus right. Isn't that cool? Paul could not do that until the veil was removed from his eyes. How did the, Paul, how did the veil get un- removed? It's because he went and spent time with Jesus, and Jesus removed the veil. Okay? So again, when you dig into scriptures, ask Jesus to come remove the veil from your eyes. And you will read the same scriptures you have read your whole life. And if you're asking Jesus, if you're searching and digging for Jesus to reveal himself, he will unveil things that you've never thought of before so that you see what heaven sees when they look at those same scriptures. Verse 16 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, After I had this encounter, I kept it a secret for some time, sharing it with no one. And I chose not to run to Jerusalem to try to impress those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went away into the Arabian desert for a season until I re- returned to Damascus, where I had first encountered Jesus. I remained there for three years until I eventually went up to Jerusalem and met the apostle Peter, and I stayed with him for a couple weeks so I could get to know him better. The only other apostle I met during that time was James, the Lord's brother. So Paul says he went up to Jerusalem to go meet Peter. But here's what Acts says about that same thing. Acts 9, verse 26. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas. Everybody say, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him in, and he brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. All right? 
I love this part. So get this. The disciples have been with Jesus himself. They've been commissioned by Jesus. Go tell everybody. And now Paul comes to them, and they're terrified. All the disciples are terrified of this one dude who's been, dis- he's been gone for years. Paul wants to come and connect with him, and they won't let him in. They shun him completely. No, we don't believe you. No, we don't see any value in you. No, we don't want to have any part of you. But Barnabas, Barnabas does what Barnabases do. Barnabas sees from heaven, this is who you really are. Barnabas was able to see prophetically into Paul. And by seeing prophetically into Paul, he saw, oh my gosh, there is a calling on this man's life. There is something powerful that we need. I need to be a part of raising this man up. And so Barnabas stakes his reputation. He goes and spends his energy. He spends his time. He spends his money. He invests himself, and he takes Paul by the arm, and he takes him personally to the apostles to connect with them. Barnabas himself puts himself in danger, potentially, of being killed by Paul. Because he sees prophetically what's inside of him. What would have happened if Barnabas hadn't taken Paul under his wing? We have no idea. But because Paul saw prophetically into, Barnabas saw prophetically into Paul, the whole world has changed. Right? So let's talk about the Barnabas anointing. I believe the Barnabas anointing, it's one of the most powerful anointings on the earth today. I think if you look through history, every single great and mighty hero of the faith that you've ever heard of, somewhere in their life will have had a Barnabas, somebody anointed to look into their life and take them under their wing for a season and throw them and launch them out, okay? The Barnabas anointing, it's an anointing to see prophetically into someone and see what God put inside of them when no one else sees it, and then to apply energy, finances, and time to help develop that gift in that person until they themselves see it as well. So remember, before Barnabas, Paul was pretty well hidden. He wasn't out preaching all the time. He had a short season, and then he went into hiding. But Barnabas saw this dude. He's anointed by God. He's called by God. Let's raise him up. Let's, let's give him what he needs so he can do his thing. And he brings him into the apostles. I love the Barnabas anointing. I believe God loves the Barnabas anointing. I believe it's one of the most selfless anointings. And I believe it's the one or one that produces some of the greatest eternal fruit in the kingdom of God. All of us should strive to be like Barnabas. And the greatest news is that I believe the Barnabas anointing isn't just for a couple. And it's not like Jesus gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. It's not like that. I think the Barnabas anointing is for everybody, every single person. If you want the Barnabas anointing, all you got to do is put your foot out there and try. And I think the Lord's going to show up and back you up. And the more you lay down your life for somebody else to become what they're called to be by God, the more you're going to find the Barnabas anointing flowing through your life. And when you get to heaven, if you live your life like a Barnabas, helping others thrive, you're going to find the most beautiful inheritance in the kingdom of heaven because you get a piece of all that those people do. Amen? So let's all be like Barnabas. Barnabas is... Okay, moving on. Barnabai. Let's all be Barnabai. <laughs> It's like a kid's cartoon. 
Watch out for those Barnabai. Okay, verse 20, Galatians 1, 20 through 24. Paul says, everything I'm describing to you, I confess before God is the absolute truth. Even after my stay in Jerusalem, I went to Syria and southeast Turkey, but remained unknown to the Jewish believers in Judea. The only thing they heard about me was this. Our former enemy, who once brutally persecuted us, is now preaching the good news of the faith that he was obsessed with destroying. Because of the transformation that took place in my life, they praise God even more. Chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I returned to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas and Titus, my co-workers. So Barnabas and Paul have been traveling about, setting fire to the region, to all of Galatia, okay, to this whole area. There's revival fires everywhere. They've planted so many churches. They come back to Jerusalem. Verse 2 of chapter 2. God had given me a clear revelation to go and confer with the other apostles concerning the message of grace I was preaching to the non-Jewish people. Okay? So God told Paul, go talk to the apostles in Jerusalem about what you are teaching all these people. Paul says, I spoke privately with those who were viewed as senior leaders of the church. And I shared with them the revelation of the gospel that I had been preaching so they would all have an understanding of what I had been teaching. I wanted to make certain that my labor and ministry for the Messiah had not been based on false understanding of the gospel. Did you catch that? Paul says, I wanted to be certain that my labor and ministry for the Messiah had not been based on a false understanding of the gospel. I wanted to be sure everything I've spent my life doing the last 14 years wasn't a waste of time. I want to make sure I didn't mess up a piece of the gospel. Okay, get this. Paul has been taught the gospel by Jesus himself. And yet, he spent his life preaching the gospel to all these people. And he has a moment in his life where he wonders, am I preaching the right gospel? Okay? Has anybody ever heard the Lord speak to you something so clearly and so profoundly? Bam! The voice of God says this. Anybody? And it's just like undeniable. Oh my gosh, the Lord spoke this so clearly. There's no questions. I can do anything. I'm going to stand on that word till the day I die. And then sometime later, you get going about in life, doing your thing, trying to be faithful to the word. And sometime later, you think, man, I don't know. Did I miss it? Did I miss the word of God? Anybody ever had that? It's probably just me, I'm sure. Okay? But here's what's so cool. Paul, the apostle, he had that experience. And what does God tell him to do? God clearly told him. Verse 2, God had given me a clear revelation to go confer with the other apostles. To make sure... I wanted to make certain that my labor and ministry for the Messiah had not been based on false understanding of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus himself taught him the gospel. He started to question a little bit. God gives him a revelation, takes the veil off, go connect with other believers who hear my voice and talk to them about what you're preaching. Okay? I think so. She said, don't I think part of his questioning happened because of year after year after year 
Jewish people pushing the law over and over and over and over and over. Yes, I do. Okay, so let's keep going. God tells him clearly, go talk to them. What should you do when you have a word from the Lord and you begin to doubt if it's 100% true? You need to take it, just like Paul did, to trusted believers who hear the voice of God. And you need to share with them what God talked to you and, and weigh it with them. And let them speak into, is this God or is this not? Okay? Verse 2, chapter 2. Paul said, my hope was that they would agree with my grace message. And indeed, they did agree, affirming the truth of what I had been teaching. Amen. I bet that was like, oh, praise God. <laughs> 14 years have not been wasted. Hallelujah. Why were they able to affirm Paul's grace message? Because they, too, had been taught by Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because we all have one teacher. Say one teacher. Okay. So great example of this. When the Lord is teaching you something that's like, oh, my gosh, this revelation is amazing. Wow. I've never heard this before. This is incredible. And you feel like you're one of the only ones that's heard it. Okay. You can stand on the fact that God is the one teacher. Jesus is the one teacher. Holy Spirit is the one teacher of all believers. He's the author and perfecter of our faith collectively as a body across the globe. What does that mean? He's also teaching other people. Even if you don't know those other people yet, he is teaching other people that thing. And that one teacher is going to be teaching the same thing across the board. So perfect example for this. Whenever God called uh, Rachel and I to plant Bethel, it was clear as day. Word of the Lord. It needs to be like this. And we spent about six months asking God, what is this supposed to look like? How should we do it? What are the different pieces of the church? And, you know, one by one, he would say, look, it needs to be like this. It can't just be one person in charge of the church. I want to flip the whole thing on its head, and I want to be the bedrock of the church. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, bedrock of the church. And then it can't just be one person. It has to be a team of people utilizing their giftings to, do, to lay down their lives to do what God wants in this area. And then as they lay down their lives, then they're going to help other people become all that they're supposed to be, and they're going to launch other people out into their ministries and their destinies throughout the area. Wow, that sounds amazing. Okay, cool. And then next, the Lord talks to me another piece, talking about the importance of love. And there was just months of like this one piece this week or these two weeks. Wow, oh my gosh, yes, everything has to be based on love. Just like heaven loves me. When heaven looks at me, they see everything that God intends for me to be. They see prophetically who I am. They're championing me to become everything I'm supposed to be. So the church has to lay down our life and love people prophetically in the same way like Barnabas does so that everybody can become all they're supposed to be. Wow, okay. And then God speaks about the four pillars and prayer and worship and how everything has to come through prayer and worship. Hearing God's voice and bringing it down to earth and partnering in prayer and worship. And then equipping and releasing and launching people out to become everything they're supposed to be. And then God's radical heart for rescuing people and constantly having that be forth. All these different pieces. And at the very, very end, he talks to me about how it needs to be a place where the Holy Spirit is accessible for all people. You can't walk in and be assaulted by the Holy Spirit. It has to be accessible for all people to really have a real relationship with the Holy Spirit. So we get through six months of this, like every single week, God laying down some new clear thing. And we're like, wow, this place sounds amazing. And wow, I don't have a clue how to do that at all. And wow, I've never seen any other church that's like that so far. But then the most incredible thing happened. You know why? Because we have one teacher. Okay? So literally some of these ideas I had never heard before. 
In the six months following what the Lord had told us, the Holy Spirit would lead us to, hey, read that book. Hey, listen to that sermon. Hey, do this, do that. And all of a sudden, I start reading a book that is saying verbatim everything God told us six months before. Whoa, this guy, oh my gosh, this is amazing. i got to go there. He must be the only one in the world that's ever done this, right? And then I, I read a, a, or listen to a sermon verbatim, exactly what the Lord has told us for six months. Oh, my gosh. And so then it was six months of learning and being called and, and being taught by the one teacher, and then six months of constant affirmation of the exact same things over and over and over and over and over when I, I didn't know that there were others out there believing and going for the same things, right? So that's how it is for you, too. If you have something where the Lord's putting it down in your, he's taking the veil off, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I've never heard this. This is incredible. There are others that the Lord is teaching as well, because we have one teacher, just like Paul went to the apostles, and they had heard the same thing from the same teacher. It's true for you. You just got to be patient and let the Lord affirm it through other people, okay? Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. They even accepted Titus without demanding that he follow strict Jewish customs before they would receive him as a brother, since he was a Syrian and not a Jew. Okay? So Paul goes to Titus. He says, Titus, we got to go see the apostles. I want to make sure I'm not lying to people. Come with me. Now, hey, there's a chance they might want you to do a few Jewish traditions before they take you in. Oh, okay, cool. No problem. Like, I'll wash my hands or something or, like, I don't know, like, take my shoes off. Like, what's the big deal? Oh, you know, just, like, not a, not a big deal. Um, they might take a knife to your circumcision is what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. So Titus is in the meeting, and they're like, Paul's like, hey, Peter, Paul, all the apostles, guys, this is Titus. Titus is like, oh, <laughs> like, what's going to happen? He sees a knife over there in the corner. He's like, oh, and they're like, Titus, welcome, brother. And he's like, can you imagine the praise and worship happening on this day from Titus? Like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. I'll always preach your grace, right? That's what we're talking about here. Praise God for grace. Verse 4. I met with him privately and confidentially because false brothers had been secretly smuggled into church meetings. They were sent to spy on the wonderful liberty and freedom that we have in Jesus, the anointed one, and to see if we were faithfully keeping the Jewish regulations. Get this. Their agenda was to bring us back into the legalistic bondage of religion. Say the legalistic bondage of religion. Say boo. Verse 5. But you must know that we did not submit to their religious shackles, not even for a moment, so that we might keep the gospel of grace unadulterated for you. The Passion Translation notes that the word shackles in Aramaic, it means their efforts to enslave us and their oppression. Okay? So Paulie clearly, Paul, uh, Paulie, <laughs> old Paulie clearly attributes the old Jewish rules of religion as being oppressive and enslaving. They were well-meaning people in that day who liked Jesus but were very serious about the rules of religion who were scheming to catch the leaders of the church, breaking the rules, so that they could get them back into the slavery of religion. Did you know this? Jesus hates religion. Jesus hates religion. Did you know this? Satan loves religion. Right? 
Satan loves religion. He thinks it's the greatest. Heck yeah, go be religious. Go do that thing. Check that off your box. Yeah, you need to do that. Why is that? Because religion shackles you into bondage. Religion is 100% all about you doing certain things to be accepted before God. And Jesus is 100% the other way. He already did everything so that you could be accepted. There is literally not one thing you could ever do to be more accepted before God than what Jesus did for you on the cross. So my question is, is there any trace of religion left in your life? Anything from old childhood ways and thinkings? Anything from high school, church that you learned from some church along the way? Is there any trace of religion left inside of you? Is there any trace of, I'm not going to be okay before God if I don't do this? Is there any trace of, I fell, I sinned, I'm going to be a few days before I'm okay with God again? Before I can talk to God, before he listens to my prayer, before I have any power in prayer, I've got to get right with God for four or five days, and then I can pray, and then I'll be strong in faith once again. Is there any trace of it? Because if you have any trace of that religious thinking, you need to eradicate it because it is not Jesus. That is Satan. You already are 100% accepted before God, not because of anything you do, but only because of the gift of righteousness that Jesus died on the cross to give you. Amen? So I'd really challenge all of us this week, God, is there anything left inside of me that has that religious mindset? Kill it. Come remove it completely from my life. Verse 6. Even the most honored and esteemed among the brothers were not able to add anything to my message. Who they are before men makes no difference to me. For God is not impressed by the reputations of men. So they concluded that I was entrusted with taking the gospel to non-Jewish people, just as Peter was entrusted with taking it to the Jews. For the same God who anointed Peter to be an apostle to the Jews also anointed me as an apostle to those who are non-Jewish. Verse 9. When they all recognized this grace operating in my ministry, James, Peter, and John, the esteemed followers of Jesus, extended to me the warmth of Christian fellowship, and they honored my calling to minister to the non-Jewish people. They simply requested one thing of me, and that I would be devoted to the poor and needy, which was the burden in my heart I was already carrying. Verse 11. So fast forward a little bit. It says this, But when Peter visited Antioch, he began to mislead the believers and cause them to stumble over his behavior. Say, boo. Religion crept in. Okay? Religion crept in. Peter had just confirmed the gospel of grace with Paul, and yet when he comes to Antioch, religion creeps in. And Paul it says, I had to confront him to his face over what he was doing. He enjoyed being with the non-Jewish believers who didn't keep the Jewish customs, eating his meals with them up until the time the Jewish friends of James arrived from Jerusalem. And when he saw them, he withdrew from his non-Jewish friends and he separated himself from them, acting like an Orthodox Jew, fearing how it would look to them if he ate with the non-Jewish believers. Oh, everybody gasp. Oh. 
And so because Peter's hypocrisy, many other Jewish believers followed suit, forming a clique and refusing to eat with non-Jewish believers. Even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's poor example and condoned this legalistic, hypocritical behavior. Ah, Peter, what are you thinking? What's wrong with you? So this is amazing to me. Even Barnabas was led off the path of grace based on Peter's man-pleasing. And not only was he led astray, but he also began to agree and condone the wrong behavior. Remember what we talked about earlier, you cannot please God and man. You cannot please man and God. Peter is a prime example of this right here. I think this is where a lot of wrong theology comes into the church over the years. Somebody who's the top dog has a moment where religion creeps in. And they have a moment of wrong thinking that's not consistent with the grace gospel. And in that moment, they say something or they do something that is wrong, according to Jesus. And all of their minions around them say, oh, oh, yeah. And they turn off their brains and they quit thinking according to the gospel of grace. And then they, they start following a wrong theology, right? Religion is a little bit like a boa constrictor. Anybody ever had one? Have you ever seen one? Everybody, okay? I've heard bad stories of boa constrictors. When they are ready to kill their prey, they'll kind of be chill and cool and just, like, watch it from a distance for a while and, like, be nice and everything. And then when they're ready to kill their prey, while the prey is sleeping, they'll sneak up next to it and they'll lay themselves in a straight line next to their prey. And they'll lay side by side, literally measuring up their prey. And when they realize they can go for it, they just nice and gentle start going around, squeezing them around. They've killed a lot of kids, you know, pet boas. And this is what they do. I've heard stories of where the mom will come in in the middle of the night and the snake's gotten out and it's laying in bed straight next to the child. Okay? That's what religion does. It's like nice. It's cool. It's chill over in the corner. It's your friend for a little while. And then when the time is right, it's going to sneak up next to you. It's going to size you up. And it's going to find a way to take you out. So what happened with Peter right here. <clears throat> so like I said, I think this is how bad religion happens. I think um, this is probably how cessationism happened. You know, some top guy says, I didn't get to see healing, so it must not be real anymore. And then everybody shuts off their brains, and then religion creeps in again. Um, there was a, a pretty well-known thing that the Baptist Missionary Board did for about a decade, from 05 to 2015. They rejected anybody who believed in the gift of tongues or who had been baptized in a Baptist church who did not agree completely with the IMB's theological statement. What? No, like somebody just turned off their brains. What are we thinking? And thankfully, David Platt became president in 2015, and he was like, guys, this is not biblical. Stop that, right? And they changed it all, and they fixed it, okay? Don't let that happen to you. But that is 100% how it happens with religion, okay? You're going to be going about your life, and you're going to be having a great time with God, and I'm connecting so well with God, and then you're going to stumble, and you're going to have a bad, dirty thought about somebody, and then Satan's going to creep in at just the right moment and think, oh, no, no, God doesn't want to hear from you right now. 
you gotta be you gotta be cool for a few days. Like chill out, be fine for a few days, and then it's just sneak on in, and it wants to wrap you up and chain you down in shackles of religion. Don't let it happen. Okay. Verse fourteen. We're almost done. So when I realized they weren't being honest to what they believed, which that's fascinating, because Paul says. He's had, a, he's had a whole conversation with these guys about this is what we believe. And yet, even still, Peter is acting inconsistently with what he knows to be true. He's acting inconsistently with the revelation of grace. So here's what it says, verse 14. So when I realized they weren't being honest to what they believed, and they were acting inconsistently with the revelation of grace, I confronted Peter in front of everybody. You're born a Jew, and yet you've chosen to disregard Jewish regulations and live like an Aramean. Why then do you force those who are not Jews to conform to the regulations of Judaism just to make a good impression on your Jewish friends? Although we're Jews by birth and not Jews, not Jewish sinners, we know full well that we don't receive God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law, but by faith of Jesus the Messiah. His faithfulness, not ours, has saved us, and we have received God's perfect righteousness. And now we know that God accepts no one by the keeping of religious laws, but by the gift of grace. Isn't that good? Way to go, Paul, right in front of everybody. Bam, Peter, <laughs> take that, you ding-dong. What are you doing? But I love this phrase in verse 14. It says, he confronted them, and they were, believe, they were acting inconsistently with the revelation of grace. So my question is, how do I act inconsistently with the revelation of grace? How do you act inconsistently with the revelation of grace? You must remember that you are in Christ. Right now, you are 100% as righteous to God as Jesus himself is righteous to God. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. That's how it is. You're as perfect before God as Jesus is. You are as accepted before God as Jesus is. Not because of anything that you can do, but only because of the gift of righteousness that Jesus gave us. And I think that's a perfect ending for today. Paul plainly spells out the gospel of grace. We know full well we don't receive God's righteousness as a reward for doing. It's only given to us because of our faith in Jesus. His faithfulness is the only reason we are saved from our sins and the punishment of death. God accepts no one by the keeping of religious laws but by the gift of grace. Hallelujah. Everybody say hallelujah. Stand up with me. Let me pray for you. Father, we just say that we love you. We're so thankful for the gift of grace. We're so thankful for the gift of righteousness. We're so thankful that you hate religion, that you banished religion. God, correct our mindsets, correct our thinking. Would you please come, Holy Spirit, this week? We give you permission over every person's life to show us places where we are acting inconsistently with the revelation of the grace gospel. Come, Holy Spirit, show us. Come, Holy Spirit, show us places where we still have traces of religion left in our systems. Come and eradicate religion out of our bodies, out of our minds, in Jesus' name. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Next week, we'll keep on... uh
2, verse 17. Love you guys. Have an awesome week.